Hello. Welcome to Postcolonial Space. I'm Masood Raja. And today I will be talking about part three of Edward Said's Orientalism introduction in our series on reading Orientalism. Now, if you have followed the lectures on in this series in the previous one, part two, we had talked about Said towards the end of the part two introduction, giving us three things that he had to balance in order to write the book or research about Orientalism. And you can watch them up there. Um, you know, our teaser will come up there. Now, in part three, he elaborates on those three things. So remember, in part two of the introduction, he's talking about how it is important to pay attention to the larger generalizations within which a scholar or someone works, but also to focus on the particularities of authors, but not let both these things over-determine one's research and writing. In part three of the introduction, he is going into the three things that he kept in mind or had to deal with or had to address in order to find out, in order to find out the best way possible of articulating his argument in Orientalism. Today we will only cover from pages 9 to 15 and that gives us the first important thing that he discusses out of the three things. So as always I will read and then we will talk about the text and then I hope that after we've done that you will have some questions and comments and if you do please do post them uh, below the video when it is on YouTube and I'll be happy to address those questions and those questions also enable me to focus these conversations more. So here we go to the first part of our today's reading. I mentioned three aspects of my contemporary reality. I must explain and briefly discuss them now so that it can be seen how I was led to a particular course of research and writing. Number one, the distinction between pure and political knowledge. It is very easy to argue that knowledge about Shakespeare or Wordsworth is not political, whereas knowledge about contemporary China or the Soviet Union is. My own formal and professional designation is that of humanist, a title which indicates the humanities as my field and therefore the unlikely eventuality that there might be anything political about what I do in the field. Of course, all these labels and terms are quite unknown as I use them here. But the general truth of what I'm pointing to is, I think, wide, widely held. One reason for saying that a humanist who writes about Wordsworth or an editor whose specialty is Keats is not involved in anything political is that what he does seems to have no direct political effect upon reality in the everyday sense. So from the very start, now remember, Said published this book in 1978. So he was writing it somewhere probably in 1976, 77. And the dichotomous, this dichotomous view, the methodological view, the distinction between those who do humanities and are humanists and those who do political work strictly probably existed in his time and it still does, right? So the first thing on his mind then is, as he articulates quite clearly, and gives it even a subtitle in the introduction part three is to define, you know, what is pure political knowledge and what is humanistic work. So the reason he's starting with the general assumption in let's say literary studies that somehow Shakespeare and Wordsworth, when we study them, we just study the text and it has got nothing to do with the politics. And for politics to be pure politics, the work needs to be 
deeply political, hence it must be connected to the field of area studies or Soviet studies or things like that. And that his title as a humanist already decides for him that the kind of work he does will deal with the text, right? That is the dichotomy that he needs to break in order to write Orientalism because a lot of his claim depend on that nothing that we write is detached from politics, right? And that's where he's going with this. Now think of it this way, wherever you work, right? There are people still who believe in this idea that somehow politics is not what we do in literature departments. Our job is to teach texts and talk about them. I mean, famously, even Stanley Fish tries to teach us that we should save the world in our own time, right? And the classroom time is to uh, give our students what we promise them to give, an understanding of literary text, as if literary text can be detached from the existential realities of the world. But that is the assumption that we work on. I mean, a, a personal anecdote, I once had a colleague who very seriously asked me that, uh, you know, will I continue doing public scholarship or would I focus on something purely humanistic that deals with literature and you know I was being polite I didn't answer to this person that what I do is also humanistic scholarship but but this person absolutely believed that the kind of scholarship that I do did not really necessarily qualify as humanistic scholarship so that distinction in so many departments of literature still holds right and it is considered not necessarily good if your work is political in one way or the other. It's considered as if that is something that we as humanists do not do. So that is the distinction that he's talking about. And we'll find out as we read what's at stake, right? If he doesn't dis disrupt that binary, a work like Orientalism is not possible, right? That's where he's going with it. But let's read on. Okay, so a scholar whose field is Soviet econ economics works in a highly charged area where there is much government interest and what he might produce in the way of studies or proposals will be taken up by policymakers, government officials, institutional economists, intelligence experts. Okay, so the distinction, what he's saying is, where was I, sorry, works in highly charged area where there is much government interest, right? Uh, the distinction between humanists and persons whose work has policy implications or political significance can be broadened further by saying that the former's ideological color is a matter of incidental importance to politics, although possibly of great moment to his colleagues in the field who may object to his Stalinism or fascism or too easy liberalism, whereas the ideology of the latter is woven directly into his material. So we already know that the former here is the humanist, right? And the latter is the person who does Soviet Union studies. Sorry, I seem to have lost the page here. My own formal and professional, uh, okay, so a scholar whose field is Soviet works in a highly charged area, right? Now the distinction between humanists and persons whose work has policy implications or political significance can be broadened further by saying that the former's ideological color is a matter of incidental importance to politics. Whereas the ideology of the latter is woven directly into his material, indeed economics, politics, and sociology in the modern academy are ideological sciences and therefore taken for granted as being political. So he's still working with these two distinctions and what are the assumptions behind it, right? So if you are a humanist, it is assumed, first of all, that your work would have no immediate political implications and certainly no impact on the politics around you, right? On the other hand, if you 
or a sociologist or a social scientist who works on an area of expertise. Let's say if you work on Soviet Union, which was Soviet Union when the book was being written, then it is immediately understood that your work is of immediate significance, that your position is ideological because you are dealing with ideological issues and that whatever you produce or write will have larger implications in the world because the policymakers will read it. People who have the power to change things will read it. And that is the distinction that is kept when people define humanists in opposition to, let's say, social scientists who work on real life issues. Now, that is one thing that Saeed has to keep in mind while writing Orientalism, right? And that is one binary that he also has to disrupt this expectations that if you're a humanist, if you're doing literary scholarship, you only talk about literature that overdetermined in so many ways by the profession itself. And if you do that, if you follow it, you're considered a serious professional. And if you somehow become political, you know, you are less respected. So that's one distinction that he has to deal with. Another thing that he has to deal with is the question of ideology itself, right? And subjectivity. Right. So when humanists believe that they deal with literary texts without politics, what they're also asserting that they can take a non-ideological position. Here is a work of art. I am reading it. That act of reading is apolitical. Right. Whereas the social scientists, the economists who study different realistic phenomena in the world already are positioned subjects. They are in an ideology and are using that to read politics or economy, right? And that distinction is what he is now trying to disrupt, right? To create space as a humanist, right? To write in a way where he can acknowledge that no matter how objective he wants to be, one can't really be deeply objective. Okay, so I will continue reading. And I apologize because as I scroll up and down the text, I sometimes lose sight of where I am. So please bear with me. So here we go reading further. Knowledge produced in the contemporary West, and here I speak mainly about the United States, is that it be non-political, that is scholarly, academic, impartial, above partisan or small-minded doctrinal belief. One can have no quarrel with such an ambition in theory, perhaps, but in practice the reality is much more problematic. No one has ever devised a method for deta detaching the scholar from the circumstances of life, from the fact of his involvement, conscious or unconscious, with a class, a set of beliefs, a social position, or from the mere activity of being a member of a society. These continue to bear on what he does professionally, even though naturally enough, his research and its fruits do attempt to reach a level of relative freedom from the inhibitions and the restrictions of brute everyday reality. For there is such a thing as knowledge that is less rather than more partial than the individual with his entangling and distracting life circumstances who produces it. Yet this knowledge is not therefore automatically non-political. Whether discussions of literature or of classical philology are fraught with or have unmediated political significance is a very large question that I have tried to treat in some detail elsewhere. And there's a footnote here. And this is a reference to a book that was entitled differently at the time Orientalism come out. But it is in the world, the text, the critic, where he talks about the affiliative and affiliative structures. And I strongly recommend that you should read it. So I continue. What I'm interested in doing now is suggesting how the general liberal consensus that true knowledge is fundamentally non-political 
and conversely that overtly political knowledge is not true knowledge obscures the highly if obscurely organized political circumstances obtaining when knowledge is produced no one is helped in understanding this today when the adjective political used as a label to discredit any work for daring to violate the protocol of pretended supra political objectivity so what i just read what comes across very clearly is he is trying to articulate what is considered a pure pursuit of humanistic knowledge right and what impinges on it that's the very first sentence right especially in the united states and what he's saying is that uh by and large what is expected out of a writer or a scholar is that their work will be a political and that if it becomes political it is somehow looked badly upon right and it is assumed in humanities education that our knowledge is pure and true because it is not caught in the contingencies of life or exigencies of life right it's not contingent about politics right and that is the binary structure between humanities and social sciences that he's trying to disrupt here and he says look i have written about it extensively and the footnote number 5 refers to a different title that book actually eventually got published as the world the text and the critic right and that's the book in which he discusses the concept of affiliation and filiation and worldliness right i do have a video on worldliness which you should watch but the idea is and i'm roughly paraphrasing said here what he suggests there is the text even in their most rarefied forms are worldly because they exist in the world right they are composed by people who exist in the world and they are read by people who exist in the world and both the politics of the reader and the writer bear upon an act of reading but what he's trying to highlight in this passage is that there is a general belief a tendency in at least humanities that the only true knowledge is the knowledge that is not political but the the important sentence here no one has ever devised a method for detaching the scholar from the circumstances of life right so we we write from where we exist right sometimes we are aware of our own ideology and our politics and maybe we can go beyond that but there is no objective way of writing that idea that writing and teaching literature can be simply objective is a politics is a fiction right and that's what he's trying to highlight uh but then he also says and talks about how being political in your work can be used by your colleagues and by people in your field to tell you that your work is not important enough because it's not pure knowledge it is political i told you that story about one of my colleagues asking me if i would write anything that is not political or public so in this part of the introduction remember our title is the distinction between pure and political knowledge so he's first trying to explain to us how does exist why does exist and how it is impossible to have this distinction but that most humanities scholars believe in it that that we need to be objective right and uh, we need to be apolitical right because his project first of all there is a two pronged approach here first of all he is trying to defend himself against the same charge that your work is political by suggesting that there is no apolitical position and being apolitical itself is a political position and two what he is saying is why not why cannot we read as he had mentioned in part 2 of the introduction the general superstructure or discourse within which our subjectivities are produced and then read the knowledge that we produce with the knowledge that so much of what we do is over determined by things outside of it and then see look at the individual acts of cultural production right and uh, so overall 
political when he's writing the book and to some extent even now is used to deride the work of humanities scholars who delve into it, right? That's what he's writing about, this assumption that somehow good knowledge or pure knowledge in humanities inherently has to be apolitical. And what he's challenging is that there is no apolitical knowledge and, and that that distinction should not apply. So that's the part we read. Let's move on to the next part. We may say first that civil society recognizes a gradation of political importance in the various fields of knowledge. To some extent, the political importance given a field comes from the possibility of its direct transactions into economic terms. But to a greater extent, political importance comes from the closeness of a field to ascertaining sources of power in political society. Thus, an economic study of long-term Soviet energy potential and its effect on military capability is likely to be commissioned by the Defense Department and thereafter to acquire a kind of political status impossible for a study of Tolstoy's early fiction financed in part by a foundation. Yet both works belonged in what civil society acknowledges to be a similar field, Russian studies. Even though one work may be done by a very conservative economist, the other by a radical literary historian. So let's dwell on here. Why does he have to go to this idea? Okay, first of all, that the political significance of the work, first of all, in the first instance is economic, right? That if it can uh, transform into some kind of economic gain, then it's considered significant. But also, the second point that he's talking about is that its significance, long-term potential, you know, for uh, various other fields, but how could it also be used in the realm of politics? So he gives you an example, let's say someone who does Russia studies, does a study of Russian economic potential, which has a direct bearing on the political uh, fortunes of United States, and it will be read as a political work, and it will be used as a political work. Whereas, and it has to have a wider political reach. Whereas in the cultural realm, if someone writes a book on Tolstoy, right, it may not have the same impact, it may not even be political, but there is one term under which both of those fall, and that is Russian study. And why is he giving us that because he, as we progress in the book, he's reading communiques, literary texts, travelogues, historical accounts, right? So what he's trying to then teach us here is that, look, when I go and read those histories and novels and travelogues and poems, I'm reading them together in a work politically because they have political implications but also they all can be brought together under the general rubric of Orientalism or Oriental studies, just as study of Tolstoy and Russian Soviet economy can be dealt under one register of Russian studies. So that, according to my reading, is why he is dwelling on this topic. So let's, uh, sorry. I keep coming back. Let's continue reading. <clears throat> My point here is that Russia as a general subject matter has political pr priority over nicest, nicer distinctions such as economics and literary history because politically so political society in Gramsci's sense reaches into such realms of civil society as the academy and saturates them with significance of direct concern to it. Okay, so remember, in the earlier part of the introduction, he talks about Antonio Gramsci and his distinction between the political society 
right? And the civic society. <clears throat> the civic society is the institutions, the poets, the writers, right? Anyone outside of government. But what he's trying to say here is that the reason I'm using the term Russian studies is that even what is done in the realm of culture eventually is either in support directly or indirectly of the political society or can be incorporated in that project. So just as people can do that with the works of Tolstoy and economic study of Soviet Union, it serves the purpose of the political society and eventually political power. Similarly, Orientalism, as we will learn as we read the book, it might even be cultural, it might even be art, but at the end of the day, as a discourse, it enables the political structure of colonialism and imperialism. That's the distinction I think he's trying to make here. Let's read on. I do not want to press all this any further on general theoretical grounds. It seems to me that the value and credibility of my case can be demonstrated by being much more specific in the way, for example, Noam Chomsky has studied the instrumental connection between the Vietnam War and the notion of objective scholarship as it was applied to cover state-sponsored military research. <clears throat> Now, because Britain, France, and recently the United States are imperial powers, their political societies impart to their civil societies a sense of urgency, a direct political infusion, as it were, where and whenever matters pertaining to their imperial interests abroad are concerned. I doubt that it is con controversial, for example, to say that an Englishman in India or Egypt in the later 19th century took an interest in those countries that was never formed from their status in his mind as British colonies. To say this may seem quite different from saying that all academic knowledge about India and Egypt is somehow tinged and impressed with violated by the gross political fact. And yet that is what I'm seeing in this study of Orientalism. For it is true that no production of knowledge in the human sciences can ever ignore or disclaim its author's involvement as a human subject in his own circumstances. Then it must also be true that for a European or American studying the Orient, there can be no disclaiming the main circumstances of his actuality, that he comes up against the Orient as a European or American first, as an individual second. So here we are. This is the crux. How has he gotten us here, first of all, by telling us that this distinction between apolitical knowledge and political knowledge is fictitious, but it is used, right? Two, even when work is being done in economic sphere, which could be immediately relevant to the powers that be, and cultural sphere, they all can be grouped together under one general area of Russian studies, just as Orientalism, right? And then the biggest claim, is it possible for in the 19th century for a European, French or British or Italian to interact with the Orient simply as an individual? That's the question. What he's trying to say is that the discourse of Orientalism that predisposes these Europeans to view the Orient as an object of study, as a place that they control politically, but also in their mind, when they come into contact with it, they come into contact with it as British citizens first, as French citizens first, and then as artists and human beings. Similarly, looking at America as an imperial power, if you live in the United States and if you have internalized this discourse that this is what our policy in Middle East is, this is what we think of Cuba, then your encounter with those places, even when you are there as a scholar or as a visitor, is first as an American 
and then as a human being. And that American view is discursively produced because your subjectivity is produced as an imperial subject. Now, he had given us a reference to uh, Chomsky's book. I'll put a link to Chomsky's book down there, but it's also in the footnotes. And that's exactly what Chomsky does in his book. It, I think, came out in 1966 where he, he's basically saying that there is no distinction between cultural work and work in direct support of the military because the situation was such that people even doing cultural work was were looking at the situation, journalists from the point of view of US interest, right? So there is no objective reporting. So that's what empirical research that he's relying on. All right. So uh, I will stop here, take a break, and then I'll come back and read some more. And my hope is to get to page 15, where he finishes the argument about the first thing that he had to consider. Remember, we're talking about the distinction between pure knowledge and political knowledge. So I'll be back in a minute. Reading on. And to be a European or an American in such a situation is not, by no means an inert fact. It, me it meant and means being aware, however dimly, that one belongs to a power with definite interest in the Orient, and more important, that one belongs to a part of the Earth with a definite history of involvement in the Orient, almost since the time of Homer. Put in this way, these political actualities are still too undefined and general to be really interesting. Any would, one would agree to them without necessarily agreeing also that they mattered very much, for instance, to Flaubert as he wrote Salambo or to H.A.R. Gibbs as he wrote Modern Trends in Islam. The trouble is that there is too great a distance between the big dominant fact as I have described it, and the details are of everyday life that govern the minute discipline of a novel or a scholarly text as each is being written. Yet if we eliminate from the start any notion that big facts like imperial domination can be applied mechanically and deterministically to such complex matters as culture and ideas, then we will begin to approach an interesting kind of study. My idea is that European and then American interest in the Orient was political according to some of the obvious historical accounts of it and that I, I, that I have given here, but that it was the culture that created that interest that acted dynamically along with brute political, economic, and military rationales to make the Orient the varied and complicated place that it obviously was in the field I call Orientalism. Therefore, Orientalism is not a mere political subject matter or field that is reflected passively by culture, scholarship, or institutions, nor is it a large and diffuse collection of texts about the Orient, nor is it representative and expressive of some nefarious Western imperialist plot to hold down the Orient world. It is rather a distribution of geopolitical awareness into aesthetic scholarly, economic, sociological, historical, and philological text. It is an elaboration not only of a basic geographical distinction, the world is made up of two unequal halves, Orient and Occident, but also of a whole series of interests which by such means as scholarly discovery, philological reconstruction, psychological analysis, landscape and sociological description, it not only creates but also maintains. It is rather than expresses a certain will or intention to understand, in some cases to control, manipulate, even to incorporate what is a manifestly different or alternative and novel world. It is, above all, a discourse that is by no means in direct corresponding relationship with political power in the raw, but rather is produced and exists in an uneven exchange with various kinds of power, shaped to a degree by the exchange with power political, 
as with the colonial and imperial establishment, power intellectual, as with reigning sciences like comparative linguistics or anatomy or any of modern policy sciences, power cultural, as with orthodoxies and canons of taste, tax values, power moral, as with ideas about what we do and what they cannot do or, or understand as we do. Indeed, my real argument is that Orientalism it is and does not simply represent a considerable dimension of modern political intellectual culture and as such has less to do with the Orient as than it does with our world. So here we are. We have kind of reached the crux of his argument about what he thinks Orientalism is and what is the role of culture. Right. So first of all, he's reversing one maybe general assumption that politics creates cultures. So what he's saying is, no, it's not a culture passively reflecting the politics. It's the culture that is in unequal relationship with different kinds of powers, like the intellectual power where it produces knowledge, right, academics and all, the aesthetic power where it produces novels and literature, right? Uh, power political, where it works with administrations and all. But overall, ultimately, Orientalism is a project of culture, right? And when that, and, and when you look at his, dis, his explanation of all the things that he associates with Orientalism, you cannot really understand it without understanding how a discourse works, right? There's a body of knowledge, there are people who, who practice it. There are institutions of prestige, conferences, and all that. So Orientalism then just, just doesn't just rely on one trope or essentialization of the natives, right? It's a combination of different aspects of culture in different kinds of texts that comes to bear upon the individual and collective subjectivities of the Occident, right? And for example, in, Amer in American scene, the Americans. But, but here, let me read it again. My real argument is that Ori Orientalism is and does not simply represent a considerable dimension of modern political intellectual culture and as such has less to do with the Orient than it does with our world. So here is Said laying it out very clearly, suggesting that Orientalism isn't just this side discourse or a discipline on the side, right? That it is, has been, the reigning discourse which has shaped, first of all, the culture, the aesthetics, the poetics, but also the ordering and way of thinking about the Orient, but in the process defining the West's own self-presentation. So what he's then saying is that Orientalism doesn't just define the Orient for the Occident, but that it itself becomes a defining characteristic, a defining discourse for the West itself. How does he prove that? Or is Of course, we have to read the book, but let's see what he says in the next pages. Because Orientalism is a culture and political fact, then it does not exist in some archival vacuum. Quite the contrary. I think it can be shown that what is thought, said, or even done about the Orient follows, perhaps occurs within certain distinct and intellectually knowable lines. Here, too, a considerable degree of nuance and elaboration can be seen working as between the broad superstructural pressures and the details of composition, the facts of textuality. Most humanistic scholars are, I think, perfectly happy with the notion that texts exist in context and there is such a thing as intertextuality, that the pressures of conventions, predecessors, and rhetorical styles limit what Walter Benjamin once called the overtaxing of the productive person in the name of the principle of creativity in which the poet is believed on his own and out of his pure mind to have brought forth his work. Yet, 
there is a reluctance to allow that political, institutional, and ideological constraints act in the same manner on the individual author. A humanist will believe it to be an interesting fact to any interpreter of Balzac that he was influenced in the comedy human by the conflict between Geoffrey St. Hilaire and Covia. But the same sort of pressure on Balzac of deeply reactionary monarchism is felt in some vague way to demean his literary genius and therefore to be less worth serious study. Similarly, as Harry Bracken has been tirelessly showing, philosophers will conduct their discussions of Locke, Hume, and empiricism without ever taking into account that there is an explicit connection in those classic writers between their philosophical doctrines and racial theory. Justifications of slavery or arguments for colonial exploitation, these are common enough ways by which contemporary scholarship keeps itself pure. Perhaps it is true that most attempts to rub culture's nose in the mud of politics have been crudely iconoclastic. Perhaps also the social interpretation of literature in my own field has simply not kept up with the enormous technical advances in the detailed textual analysis. But there is no getting away from the fact that literary studies in general and American Marxist theorists in particular have avoided the effort of seriously bridging the gap between the superstructural and the base levels in textual historical scholarship. On another occasion, I've gone so far as to say that the literary cultural establishment as a whole has declared the serious study of imperialism and culture off lim limits. So obviously, the question in the paragraphs that I just read is then also a question still on the same lines, right? What he's trying to articulate is the question of politics and culture. But what he's trying to suggest here is that there are two aspects of looking at literary text, right? What he calls the superstructure and what he calls the base. Now, he's using those in culturalist terms, but superstructure for him is the larger discursive structures in which an individual artist produces some work, right? And his examples of Balzac and others are what he's trying to suggest here is that while literary humanists and literary critics and his field is comparative literatures are by and large okay with putting a literary text within its immediate context. So if there is a political debate going on and if it is operative within a text, let's say in Balzac, they would agree that that has an impact on the text. What they are still reluctant, according to Said, to admit is that one could be incorporated as a person within a larger superstructure of thinking about things and that that can have a bearing on how one represents and how one writes. And that's why there is that quote from Walter Benjamin, which is about the, the question of genius and does the individual bring his or her work to the world, or are there any enabling conditions where he or she lives that enables an author to create a work? That's the distinction. And as he goes into the critique of the philosophers, the same question is applied there, right? This tendency even in philosophy to say, okay, you know, uh, we know he was a Nazi sympathizer, but that doesn't undermine Heidegger's philosophy, right? Not necessarily just that, but as Derrida points out when he writes his critique of Heidegger, right? Derrida said, you know, the basic argument is it's very simple to say that Heidegger is a Nazi sympathizer. There are texts out there just as Orientalism is real and not just archival because it functions, right? But what Derrida says is that, that in order to write about it, you have to invent a new language. So in Off Spirit, when Derrida writes his critique of Heidegger, what he ultimately ends up proving is that Heidegger is caught within his own philosophy, that there is no other option for him within that philosophy other than becoming right, a Nazi sympathizer. So that's philosophical work, but it looks... So in order to read that, not saying Derrida, 
looks at the infrastructure, but at least he looks at the infrastructure of Heidegger's thought of superstructure, I mean. So the emphasis in this part still is in trying to suggest that culture is inextricably linked with politics, that it sometimes drives politics, but there is a tendency in the humanities especially to assume that the larger structures and discourses within which literature is produced are not operative, right? And that is one way in which the humanist and literary scholars, according to Said, can still, still maintain the fiction of pure knowledge. Now remember, this section and this entire lecture and reading has been about one aspect of what he had to think about while writing Orientalism, and that was the distinction, artificial now that it sounds now that we have read, say, between pure knowledge and political knowledge. And in this section, he's pointing out that even when the scholars do acknowledge the immediate context of the novel where they fail is in acknowledging that there can be larger discursive superstructural aspects of reality in which the work is produced, which can shape the perception of the author and the reader and actually are operative in a work. So that's what, according to my view, were, and there is a reference there that he will mount a critique of Marxist scholars even who have not taken that into account. Uh, now, it was probably published before Jameson published The Political Unconscious, right? And then a lot else has happened in literary studies since 1978. So I would say that, you know, the work Christ Marxist and also the works of um, people like Antonio Negri and all the others, Carlo Versilone, these uh, Franco Berardi and even Althusser to some point later, Althusser, that that aspect of Marxism and works of Terry, Terry Eagleton already are engaged and probably were engaged during uh, Said's own time in reading the impact of larger superstructures. The only difference would be that because there is an acute reading of determination in the last instance, right? That famously what Marx said is that in the last in instance, it's economics that even determines the culture. And there is that reversal here where Said is saying, no, culture actually drives politics in an unequal relationship with different kinds of powers, what we read in the previous passage. So that was my understanding of the passage that I just read. So let's move on and read the final part of today's For lecture. Orientalism brings one up directly against that question, that is to realizing that political imperialism governs an entire field of study, imagination, and scholarly institutions in such a way as to make its avoidance into an intellectual and historical impossibility. Yet there will always remain the perennial escape mechanism of saying that a literary scholar and a philosopher, for example, are trained in literature and philosophy respectively, not in politics or ideological analysis. In other words, the specialist argument can work quite effectively to block the larger and, in my opinion, the more intellectually serious perspective. Here, it seems to me there is a simple two-part answer to be given, at least so far as the study of imperialism and culture or Orientalism is concerned. In the first place, nearly every 19th century writer, and the same is true enough of writers in earlier periods, was extraordinarily well aware of the fact of empire. This is a subject not very well studied, but it will not take a modern Victorian specialist long to admit that liberal cultural heroes like John Stuart Mill, Arnold, Carlyle, Newman, Macaulay, Ruskin, George Eliot, and even Dickens had definite views on race and imperialism, which are quite easily be, to be found at work in their writing. So even a specialist must deal with the knowledge that Mill, for example, made it clear in On Liberty and Representative Government that his views there could not be applied to India. 
he was an India office functionary for a good deal of his life after all, because the Indians were civilizationally, if not racially, inferior. The same kind of paradox is to be found in Marx, as I try to show in this book. In the second place, to believe that politics in the form of imperialism bears upon the production of literature, scholarship, social theory, and history writing is by no means equivalent to saying that culture is therefore a demeaned or denigrated thing. Quite the contrary. My whole point is to say that we can better understand the persistence and the durability of saturating hegemonic systems like culture when we realize that their internal constraints upon writers and thinkers are productive, not unilaterally inhibiting. It is this idea that Gramsci certainly and Foucault and Raymond Williams in their very different ways have been trying to illustrate. Even one or two pages by Williams on the uses of the empire in the long revolution tell us more about 19th century cultural rich richness than many volumes of hermetic textual analysis. Therefore, I study Orientalism as a dynamic exchange between individual authors and the large political concerns shaped by the three great empires, British, French, American, in whose intellectual and imaginative territory the writing was produced. What interests me most as a scholar is not the gross political verity, but the detail, as indeed what interests us in someone like Lane or Flaubert or Renan is not the, to him, indisputable truth that Occidentals were superior to Orientals, but the profoundly worked over and modulated evidence of the, his detailed work within the very wide space opened up by that truth. One need not only remember that Lane's Manners and Customs of the Modern Egyptians is a classic of historical and anthropological observation because of its style, its enormously intelligent and brilliant details, not because of its simple reflection of racial superiority to understand what I'm saying here. The kind of political questions raised by Orientalism then are as follows. What other sorts of intellectual, aesthetic, scholarly, and cultural energies went into the making of an imperialist tradition like the Orientalist one? How did philology, lexicography, history, biology, political and economic theory, novel writing, and lyric poetry come to the service of Orientalism's broadly imperialist view of the world? What changes, modulations, refinements, even revolutions take place within Orientalism? What is the meaning of originality, of continuity, of individuality in this context? How does Orientalism transmit or reproduce itself from one epoch to another? In fine, how can we treat the cultural, historical phenomena of Orientalism as a kind of willed human work, not of mere unconditioned resignation? In all its historical complexity, detail, and worth without at the same time losing sight of the alliance between cultural work, political tendencies, the state, and the specific realities of domination. Governed by such concerns, a humanistic study can responsibly address itself to politics and culture. But this is not to say that such a study establish a hard and fast rule about the relationship between knowledge and politics. My argument is that each humanistic investigation must formulate the nature of that connection in the specific context of the study, the subject matter, and his, its historical circumstances. So quite a lot is packed in these last paragraphs about the first question that he's trying to answer, right? The distinction between pure knowledge and political knowledge. And uh, as you read, and if, if you have read with me, uh, you know, the question still remains the same, right? Is what kind of evidence is there to suggest while reading these texts, right, from different fields of knowledge? that they all were produced within a larger power structure, right? And the, that juxtaposition that he makes with willed hu human work, right? As, as opposition to just 
accidentally reasoning about something. So what he's saying is that not only did people make an effort to write about different parts of the world, they had already internalized the logic that they are imperial citizens and these are their colonies and that that is really operative in these writings. So hence, the role of scholarship is to see that conversation between culture and politics. Then he goes on to suggest that not all of this was negative, that this experience of Orientalism was also productive. For that he is relying on, of course, Foucault's work mostly, who's Foucault's work on how power works and how power is also productive because it produces its own resistances, right? And we have to read our Foucault to understand that. On the superstructural level readings of a literary text in opposition to what the specialist argument is. What he refers to as a specialist argument is actually an argument where people will come and tell you, well, we are trained to read literary texts. Right? That's what we do. That's what we teach. It's not our job to look at the larger discourses within which the literary texts are produced. So he, that's the argument against which he's saying, well, if that's your argument, then a few pages of Raymond Williams' The Long March and Long Revolution are, are richer in context than your work because what Williams does is give a larger context within which literary texts are produced. So the tension is still the same. The individual composition that he previously mentions and the larger structures within that, within which that composition is made. Now, if we buy into the idea of authorial genius and the genius bringing a work to fruition, then we can't account for the politics and culture within which that work is produced, right? But what he's saying, let's account for that. And that leads him to the questions about Orientalism, right? What kind of aesthetic politics research were at play in establishing and stabilizing um, the discourse of Orientalism, right? Um, how did different disciplines that he names participate in it, right? Uh, what kind of revolutionary challenges were posed to it? And then what is it is, uh, historically that enables Orientalism to go from one century to another and still stay a stable body of work? He's also very careful. He's saying, okay, if, if we read Lane, Edward William Lane's work, we're not saying he is relying on, you know, half-truths. I mean, the quality of the work is amazing. It's beautiful. It's well-written. What he is trying to trace is that what is it in the world where Lane is working which constitutes his thought a certain way that he only sees the Orient, you know, as inferior to Europe. And that mentality, that way of looking at the Orient is what he's saying is produced through the Orientalist discourse. Then towards the end of this section, you know, his argument is that he says, well, I think we can do both. We can read text within their cultural context, but we can also do political work and see what is the politics behind a text or around a text or within a text, right? So what he's trying to break then in this section of the introduction is this generalized assumption on the part of humanities, especially that we are readers of the text. And somehow if we do political readings of the text, we are not necessarily doing good humanistic work. That's the distinction he's trying to disrupt, right? And articulate why there is a necessity to read the larger political structures within which literature is produced and that in so many ways culture itself also produces politics, enables it. And Orientalism is that larger cultural, political, academic discourse that he is going to study. Why does he need to do that? I mean, think of it, he's publishing in 1977. He is already anticipating that his work may not be taken seriously because it's too political, right? Because it's relying on this huge construct instead of just going to one or two specific texts because that is the tradition against which he is working. So in this first part of the introduction then, 
one obvious objection to his work that could have come about his work not being pure academic scholarship but rather politics that's the one that he's trying to challenge and create a space for Orientalism, his book, to come across as a serious work. Not necessarily by its own intensity, but by Said himself challenging the basic assumption of humanistic studies of keeping culture and politics separate. Right. So that's uh, kind of my conclusion of this lecture and this uh, uh, we are still in part three of the introduction and we will now move on to discussing his second point uh, in the next uh, conversation. So I am um, enjoying this experience. I know it can get a little boring, but please do also keep in mind that it takes me a lot of time to prepare these things, right? So if this is a, a 40 minutes lecture or a one hour lecture, I can promise you that I spent about eight to 10 hours on it. So I would deeply appreciate it if you would interact with this, if you would add your questions, comments, tell me, let me know if you like it, let me know what else you want me to do, but become a part of the conversation and that would enable me to continue doing this because we all need that recognition from outside. So that's all from today. Uh, we have now covered up to page 15 in the introduction. And next time when I come to you, I will be reading from page 16 onwards, another part of part three of Edward Said's introduction to Orientalism. Thank you so much. I'll see you next time.